Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. Before we get started, looking back 40 years ago this summer, I must tell you this, that Screen Time with Rowan Roper is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing that drives your overall business success. Because they believe that today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. He's lost. He's alone, and he's three million light years from home. I'm keeping you. Steven Spielberg's masterpiece <sighs> will come to life. Home, home. E.T., the extraterrestrial. I'll be right here. 40 years ago this summer, that little thing made history. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what he looks like now, because he was already kind of <laughs> prematurely wrinkled and kind of short. We're talking, of course, about uh, E.T. Uh, the official title of the movie, of course, was E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Okay. Rokan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is amazing. In the, in the next uh, hour or so, we're going to talk about all the movies that came out, not just in 1982, Ro, but in the summer. Of 1982, which is really one of the great movie summers of all time. And of course, E.T., I mean, Spielberg has done so many great films. We, at some point, I'm sure we'll do a whole podcast about all the great films he's done. It's also, you know, a few summers before that, seven summers before that, right? Jaws came out, kind of invented or brought about the new era of the summer blockbuster. But E.T. was something else in terms of commercial and critical and just worldwide success. Everybody loved E.T., right? And they had already cut a deal with Reese's Pieces going into the film. Yes. I mean, the, the product placement game had begun yeah. literally years before that, actually a yeah. long time prior to that. It, you know, started with just cigarettes being in films because the, they, they were demanded. Hey, doctor, I got a cough. What do you think I should do? <laughs> I think you should have a pack of L&Ms. They're refreshing. <laughs> the argument was that cinematographers always like the effect. Yeah, the noir effect. Right, yeah. or the idea that it gives you time to let a line land yeah right you know or seen land but this is i to me uh one of the great in advance we knew the reese's pieces were part of the commercial tie-in for this and i thought and you saw the poster and you got to see what this thing looked like and you're like oh my god i'm not hungry i know how is that going to help me with this but it worked it worked beautifully and to this day the fine folks at m&m's lament the fact that they turned down (laughs) they were offered that opportunity first and i think they were like you they were like what what some weird squat little wrinkly <laughs> alien with a light up finger is going to be eating our can? No, we we'll, we'll take a pass on that. You know. you know what this did though? It cemented Spielberg as the great chronicler of suburbia. Yes, in America. Yes, absolutely. So you got it in Jaws. Right. I mean, Jaws, it, all those scenes in the beginning of Jaws where, you know, he's dealing with the family and then they're, you know, they're calling from the beach if there's a missing girl yeah. on the beach and the kids are running around. And then, you know, you move your way forward through the entire poltergeist yeah. the same way. There's always yeah. a dinner table scene in every one of Spielberg's yeah. movies. Just with brilliant. The kids. Any, you know, and you've seen this. Uh, this is a film that has obviously influenced generations of filmmakers. And of course, Spielberg, all of his work has. But, you know, that all that kind of defeat used light coming through mm-hmm. the windows at certain points and he also you know played on that whole thing where you know this was a, a single mom right a divorced mom 
trying to kind of keep control over her kids in her life. And, you know, so, you know, Henry Thomas was incredible as Elliot. I mean, what a natural actor. And he continues to work to this day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he needed a friend because his older brother had some friends. And, you know, and then, of course, little Drew Barrymore was Gertie. She was like five. Right. Uh, but it was really uh, Elliot's story. Uh, I'm keeping him, he said, when he found E.T. And we, a lot of times before that and even since then, you know, when aliens come here, they usually, they're not in a good mood. They want to fight. <laughs> right. right. And this this this, <laughs> was, this was someone who just wanted to go home, which again plays into everything about, you know, the American dream. And it, right. it, it's kind of a modern day, modern day, 40 years ago, as you mentioned, but <laughs> it's kind of a 1980s version of The Wizard of Oz. Really. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Uh, and then also in that year, Steven Spielberg wrote and produced Poltergeist and then kind of ended up directing it, too, because Toby Hooper and he had yeah. a little bit of a thing. The house looks just like the one next to it and the one next to that and the one next to that. A young couple live in it and something more. Yeah, yeah, and I, can, I think contractually he couldn't actually actually direct it, but you know, Toby Hooper's a great director. He did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? But I think you know again, Spielberg. You know, listen, it's, that movie's scary as f. I mean, yeah. Poltergeist. You yeah. know, some of the scenes, the clown under the bed, and all the stuff on the oozing stuff. But Spielberg wanted also to infuse it again with, as you say, Ro, that kind of suburban Americana family moves to this subdivision. Looks like they're having the dream life. Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson as yep. the parents. Young couple that are yeah. kind of, they're getting high in bed and they're kind of fooling around. Yeah, they're kind of like the yeah. modern, you know, the yeah. cool boomer couple, right? Yep. With the kids and everything. And then it also was saying a lot about television. There was that, you know, that famous thing, like, don't sit too close to the television. We were all told that as kids, right. which turns out, doesn't matter if you sit that close no. to the TV. We're all going to get brain cancer. Yeah. And my, well, my, yeah. dad, my dad said testicular cancer. Oh, and I'm like, what? Geez. What's I'm not, that? I'm, not I'm mount- like eight. I'm not mounting the Motorola, <laughs> the Quasar by Motorola television. But, you know, that idea and that incredible artwork with the yeah. little girl, uh, Heather O'Rourke, you know, right in front of the television set. And they are here. I mean, they always had the great catchphrases. You know, mm-hmm. uh, just when you say thought it was safe to go back in the water and I'm keeping him from E.T. and they're here and, and Poltergeist, man, that, that was a great thrill ride. And it was kind of the, uh, yeah, the other side of uh, kind of supernatural visitors. E.T., he's great. You can put him in a hoodie. He'll go on a bike ride. Right. He's all about friendship and I'll be here and his heart lights up and everything. And now you got uh, some really evil things, kidnapping children and taking them through the right. other side. right. Right, and and it has a great performance by Beatrice Strait, the character actress yes. from the nineteen seventies into the eighties. She yeah. was in Network. She, I think, she got yeah. the Oscar for like the shortest performance ever yeah. to win yeah. an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, there's that one great scene that she has with William Holden that just blew the voters away and everybody else. But Poltergeist, I mean, think about that one-two punch: E.T. and Poltergeist in the summer of eighty-two. But then, row. If that's not enough, there's a lot more because Rocky Three. You had that eye of the tiger, man, the edge. And now you've got to get it back. And the way to get it back is to go back to the beginning. You know what I mean? United Artists and Chartoff Winkler proudly present Rocky Three. You got civilized. The truth is we both started out on the same corner and I got lucky with my life and it's driving you nuts. Philadelphia salutes its favorite son, Rocky Balboa. 
came out Memorial Day weekend, which we still say is the beginning of the you know the movie right. summer calendar. And, and Rocky Three proved it again this uh, year, by the way, that it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's just the way it is. And it was, wasn't really that way until the seventies. But you know, Rocky Three, that was kind of you know the, the first two. It was Rocky Balboa underdog because at the end of Rocky One, people sometimes forget this. He lost that fight actually to Apollo Creed. Right. So the second one was about the rematch, and he wins. Spoiler alert: he you know he knocks out. Apollo Creed, and then the idea was, well, that's pretty much all we're going to do with this franchise. But Stallone was, no, 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 no. <laughs> I got some other, I got, I got some other ideas. So, so this one was much more, I guess you could say, crashly commercial. It's become yeah. much more beloved over the years because it, it is, it's way over the top. But Stallone, the writer, had this great gift for creating villains, right? They were basically like superhero villains. Right. So first, you had the wrestling match with Thunderlips. Hulk Hogan, who was just becoming a huge star at the time. That was a big thing for Hulk Hogan to be in that big movie. But then Mr. T was Clubber Lang. And, oh, Clubber Lang. Yeah, he was, oh, oh, he, oh, hiss, boo. <laughs> Remember, he even, like, hit on uh, Adrian at a press conference, you know? He had the feather and everything going, you know? I, I often thought that Mike Tyson saw that movie as a young boxer <laughs> and thought, I want to be just like Mr. T, the way that I, I looked at that. Well, you probably go all the way back with Mr. T. I do. Because, uh... Uh, well, he was a, a bouncer at a club called Dingbats Correct. in Chicago. Yes, right? he was. And I do go all the way back to being 15 years old <laughs> and meeting Mr. T for the first time <laughs> at that club because they had a juice night at that club where you could, as a teenager, get in and uh, it was no alcohol served. Oh the same God. disco kind of thing. Really? And Mr. T was the affable doorman at that club, making wow. sure that everybody coming in was uh in this particular case of age, because if you were over 18, they didn't want you in either. Oh, wow. It's kind of a crazy yeah. thing. Yeah, and, I go and, all the way back to that. And I know you and I doing radio over the years, you'd have him in. And he was always, he kind of stayed in character as Mr. Yeah. T. You yeah, know, I mean, he was him. great entertainment. Uh, so, And that, of course, the other thing was one of the most famous kind of action movie, sports movie anthems in Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Right. Comes from... Rocky III, and, our, by, and that's your friend Jim Peterick, right? Written by Jim Peterick, who did Vehicle and uh, Hang On Loosely and all uh, so many songs that you're familiar with, and plays it at every single concert, yes. every single Ides of March concert, which was his original band, yeah. and you're like, did they do this song? It's pretty impressive. Right now, yeah. I think Survivor can't even catch up with them. But this. you know, that was, first of all, it was a great song for that movie, but then it's been used in a zillion documentaries yeah. and commercials. So I think Jim Peterick just drives his Lamborghini to the mailbox in suburban Chicago and picks up the royalty checks from, a, that is from Rocky 3. 100% true. Uh, now, here's a groundbreaking movie from 1982 that okay. all my friends, we all had to go see right. immediately when it occurred. Blade Runner. Yeah. This is a bad one. The worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. Three male, three female. A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Changed everything in that sort of, is it science fiction genre but now we're time traveling we're moving forward what do these characters really look like it wasn't what star wars was it was a it was a film noir version of star wars yeah that's a perfectly put ridley scott uh was the director of blade runner and it really was this you know it's from uh, philip k dick and a lot of his stories have been turned into great you know sci-fi films there have been like seven or eight different versions of Blade Runner. There's always this this argument about who was a replicant and who wasn't. Right. 
And I've watched it a, a dozen times, and I, I still don't have all the answers. <laughs> I know there's some origami involved and Sean Young. And, of course, Harrison Ford was perfectly cast because, uh, you know, his lack of range. Sometimes, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, Harrison Ford's not, you know, he's not Jeremy Irons or Daniel Day-Lewis in terms of you don't see him doing, you know, Shakespeare necessarily. No. But he's perfect for this. He's very much Bogart-like, as you mentioned, kind of a film noir thing. And Blade Runner... You want to talk about an influence. I mean, how many movies have we seen since then where they get the neon lights everywhere and it's always raining right. and you're in these weird cafes where you might the guy behind the counter could be an assassin, all that good stuff. This is all in the summer of 82. Let me talk to you about some chocolate cake first and then right. we'll continue on with this. about Portillo's. It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet Earth. And that is absolutely true. I'm not making that up. I I, I probably order from or eat drive through a Portillo's drive through and eat from Portillo's I probably once a week. Probably, I would say. And you know why? Because they got the best hot dogs, they got the best Italian beef, they got the best Italian sausage, and <laughs> they got great salads, they got great french fries, they got great everything that you want if it's comfort food or uh, what are they called? Fast casual now. Whatever that is, mm. you you have got to stop by a Portillo's if you haven't done it yet. And if you live outside of the area in which there are Portillo's, you can order the stuff online. And I always tell you, order the chocolate cake because it's the best chocolate cake you're ever going to have in your life. You can think, well, now how is a fast casual restaurant in Chicago going to make the best chocolate cake I ever had in my life? Trust me, it is. There are people all over the planet Earth that actually order that cake for their weddings and they build wedding cakes out of the individual chocolate cakes. I'm not making that up. <laughs> Try it. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. That's how you spell it. Portillo's.com. So speaking of science fiction action films tron also comes out in the summer of 1982 the computer an extension of the human intellect the ncom 511 center of the most calculating intelligence on earth programmed by master control to survive by all means soon the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy and that was revolutionary for the look and you know you can go back now and say oh gosh you know kind of rudimentary not really though it looks pretty amazing so jeff bridges is the guy right he kind of ends up inside the video game right which again is a thing that's been done many many times since then in big giant movies where you find yourselves you know a part of the matrix if you will but it had just a just an amazing look, and it was the kind of film where you're like, you got to go see Tron at the movies. 1982. Think about it, we're only two decades past the 60s and the kind of cheesier type of you know sci-fi movies. Although some of them were great, like Planet of the Apes and things like that. And Tron, I think more than anything else, it was just you know the amazing visuals to that story. They right. did they did a sequel like 40 years later, and it didn't matter as much because it wasn't groundbreaking. Well, think about what 1982 represented. It represented that next generation of video games hmm. because the uh, yeah, yeah. 70s 
gave you that thing that would go beep. Pong. Pong. I still got a game going. Yeah. With a friend of mine from uh, junior year in high school. Atari. Uh, Atari uh, was, you know, they, they were first in and they wanted to, they, they really wanted to make a splash. <laughs> but it, it now all of a sudden there were things that moved and yeah, there were yeah. characters that you could, uh, you could relate to. You weren't creating them yet. No. They but were already you, created. But you could at least control some of their directions. Right. right? So it became that was and it, it seemed mm. to me when I was playing those video games with my friends as my parents would not allow me to have one, mm. which I think was a good idea because I'd still be playing it in my bedroom right now <laughs> and I wouldn't be sitting here. You had this thought in your head like, oh, this could never get better than this. Yeah. I just remember yeah. that yeah. about those games. Very thinking, true. Hey, this, this is as good as, it's, as it could ever be. Well, and that's still a huge thing in modern day for people to play those retro games. They have huge tournaments and everything and you know people can restore them and they're selling Pac-Man and all those machines for thousands of dollars. And I also have to mention, in addition to Jeff Bridges, uh, the leading lady, Cindy Morgan. Uh, and again, got to go back to the Chicago roots. She grew up in the area. She's lovely. She's wonderful. I've talked to her over the years. She, of course, was also Lacey Underalls in Caddyshack. So quite a run she was having right there in the 80s, Cindy Morgan. <laughs> that is true. And now to ironic comedy mm. or pathos. I'm not exactly sure where to take this. The World According to Garp. Welcome to The World According to Garp, where anything can happen and usually does. When I get older, losing my head many years from now. Will you still be sending me Be safe here. Robin Williams is Garp in the world according to Garp. If one has not seen this film and wants to look back yeah. at kind of a zeitgeist film from the 1980s, 70s into the 80s, because yeah. you know, you really, I don't think the 80s really began until 1982. Like yeah, 80 yeah. and 81 were very much like the 70s. Yeah. Well, know? it's sort of like the 60s didn't end to the end of the Vietnam War, really. You know, we call right. these decades, you know, we'd use the the bookends. But yeah, I get what you're saying exactly. But know? The World According to Garp was not only based on a novel, it's a was a turn. It was a, a new way of looking at storytelling. And, and it has, in terms of a cast... Now you look back on it when these were all basically newcomers, right? Yeah, when they yeah. Came out. One of Robin Williams' first kind of dramatic roles in the John Irving novels, one of those six hundred page novels that everybody was reading. You know, very dense, but also revolutionary because there was all kinds of crazy for its time, especially developments, including the fact that uh, John Lithgow's character was Roberta Muldoon, a transgendered former NFL tight end. Yep. Now think about that in nineteen eighty two. And it was, you know, there were a lot of other, you know, kind of heavy stuff that goes on in, in this thing. But uh, it's kind of a beautiful film. Very dark. There's, you know, there's a lot of depression and suicide and tragedy, uh, but lyrical. And again, you know, the idea that this came out in the summer amidst all these other giant kind of action films and sci-fi movies. And then there was, you know, this is what you call your kind of your prestige project, getting your yes. nominations and things like that. Although I will say this, that it could ruin you. On the notion of oral sex. Okay, yeah. There is a scene is, yeah. in this film yeah. in which, uh, well, yeah. an unspeakable thing happens. Just watch the film, you'll see. Yeah. I don't want to give it away. I know it's a spoiler from 40 years ago, but it is so shocking. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's a, you know, if you get hit from behind, you know, I don't the know, I, thing, yeah, okay. I Forget about it. How about and, something a little, a little lighter, but still a black comedy, if you will? Night Shift came out in 1982, Rob. Chuck Lumley works nights. He's a civil servant, and so is Bill. 
Chuck and Bill have a very strange partnership. They also have a happy staff. Night shift. It makes the day seem dead by comparison. Ron Howard arrives with Night Shift yeah, as a yeah. director. Right, that's it. The beginning, middle, and end. And Michael Keaton arrives yeah. as a not just comedic actor, but a range actor. It's really funny. Just this week, uh, sixty Minutes was replaying the Michael Keaton interview, oh, and they talked yeah. to one of the things that goes. We never knew you had such range. He's like, range? What are you talking about? Ah. <laughs> like the same in every film. Well, you know, Night Shift. Yeah, first of all, you know, it's kind of a hard art comedy. It's about a guy, Henry Winkler, playing against type. He, right. you know, against the Fonzie type is this mild mannered guy who works in a morgue, and then Michael Keaton gets into his life and says, "Let's run a brothel." And Shelley Long, who was just about to hit in Cheers, plays a hooker. So it's everybody's kind of, and, and you know, and Ron Howard, people are like, wait a minute. Opie and, and Richie Cunningham, he's doing this hard R right. sex comedy. And, and it, it's very funny. And it did. Michael Keaton, a lot of people at the time thought, oh, he's just doing Bill Murray. Because it was the same kind of, you know, manic character. But obviously he's carved out his own career. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you watch this film closely, you will see uh, maybe the first time, I think it's the first time that Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, <laughs> yeah. appears in one of his films. He's appeared in all no, of in them. All of them, yeah. Right. Yeah. And you have Shannon Doherty, if you remember her, Jeez, right? Yeah, yeah. And God bless her. She was she makes an appearance yeah. in this film as a very young Shannon Doherty. And Kevin Costner is actually in Night Shift. I think there are some clips where you can like slow down the action there and you can see him. Because for a while there, Kevin Costner was on that the wrong kind of role because he was the dead guy in the big chill. And they right. never showed him, right? And then, and then it was barely a night shift, but then things turned out pretty well for him. Uh, also, Fast Times at Ridgemont High comes out this year, too. So it was, like, yeah. it was like a high school dream. I was just graduating from high school. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. Uh -huh. That was my skull. I'm so wasted. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High. In 82. Mm -hmm. I've just given away my age. I was, I think, seven. But when you, I were a, you were a yeah, child prodigy. prodigy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and Amy Heckerling, who directed that. And Cameron Crowe. People, now, Cameron Crowe, everybody knows he's done all these great movies, Almost Famous and Vanilla Sky and, you know, 25 years of great films. But the fascinating thing, of course, Almost Famous is kind of based on his own experiences as this teenage journalist. But the other thing he did when he was like 24 or so, he wrote a book called, it was I believe it was Claremont High, was the actual high school in California, where he went undercover as a high school student because he had that youthful look. And so it was a nonfiction. He, you know, he changed all the names and everything. So that's what this is based on. Cameron Crowe's own experiences where he kind of went, and I don't think you can get away with that now, being a 25-year-old and not telling anybody except for maybe the principal that you were, you know, writing a book about these kids, you know, it was before 21 Jump Street. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole premise of 21 Jump Street, except those were yeah. cops inside the yeah, school. Yeah, but that was fictional. This guy really did this, but this was a fictional telling of it. But, you know, you want to talk about the great cast, Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, that there's something with oh, her and the, the cars Cates, she gets yeah. out of the mm -hmm. pool, mm -hmm. Judge Reinhold, Sean Penn. Uh, and in small roles, even Nicholas Cage, Eric Stoltz, uh, Forrest Whitaker, and Anthony Edwards were in that. Film. Oh yes, they were the stoners. Memorable. A lot of those guys. Stoltz was a stoner. They were they were buds to uh, to Spicoli. You know, they get out of the van and it'd be all filled with smoke and everything. <laughs> now, okay, so you see Sean Penn, yeah, in this film in 1982. 
I don't think anybody, anybody, including Sean Penn, would have predicted. Yeah. Maybe save Sean Penn. Would have predicted that Sean Penn would be one of the yeah. great serious actors of his generation. Because from, you know, that, that was that whole group. They kind of grew up together. Rob Lowe, uh, Charlie Sheen, Emilio right. Estevez. Yeah, you know, they were all, but all of their parents were in show business. Uh, Sean Penn's, uh, his father was Leo Penn, I believe was a director. And from what they tell, he was more like that guy. Not Brando, you know, and like that was how Sean Penn was, and, and Ray Walton is Mr. Hand. Some of the greatest scenes of all time, the Mr. Pizza Guy delivery scene. I mean, that's a film that is still really funny. Forty years later, the United States decided to throw a little weight around, and uh, who is it? Mr. Pizza Guy again. Mr. Pizza Guy, sir. Pour the double cheese and sausage. Right here, dude. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learning about Cuba, having some food. Mr. Spicoli, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? And then in the top 10 military films mm. of all time. I joined the Navy. You joined the Navy. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> you man. What for? Jets. Wanna fly jets? Look at yourself. Officers don't have tattoos. What's your name, boy? Mayo. Zach Mayo, sir. Officer and a gentleman, because it's not just a great look, and I think in some ways, a realistic look at the emotions of mm. people going through a boot yeah. camp. Nothing's quite like Full Metal Jacket. That's the best movie of all yeah. time for that. But this is a really like a good second or third yeah. to that. And then you got the love story. Yeah, it kind of crosses the bridge between Full Metal Jacket, hardcore, one of the great films of all time, mm -hmm. and Top Gun, the ultimate kind of fantasy. And in between that, you have Officer and Gentleman, as you mentioned, because it's. I think it does a good job. You would know this better than almost anyone. It does a pretty good job, I think, of showing what they go through yeah. in the camp. Louis Gossett Jr. got the Oscar, the Academy Award for Best yep. Supporting Actor, and Richard Gere was perfectly cast. Deborah Winger, you know, so you had in the middle of all this, and there's tragedy, and there's, you know, this you know, kind of great underdog story. But also one of the great romantic moments of all time when he comes into the factory yep. and literally sweeps her off her feet. And Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warren's uh, let, uh, Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong. Love Lift Us Up Where We Belong. And can I tell you something too, Rokan? Taylor Hackford, the director of Officer and a Gentleman, mm -hmm. who's just a, a wonderful gentleman himself and has done a lot of great stuff. He has his own love story. He's married to Helen Mirren. Oh, how great is that? How's how's that? How's that for a power couple from back in the day? That is pretty cool. Well, she's still, you know, fairly yeah. powerful. She's, you know, constantly being cast in something, whether it's British television or some big thing. And she's she's up for an award every hour on the hour. Uh, she's the queen. She runs uh, Secret <laughs> Service stuff and missions and all that great stuff. Yeah. And she was quite a beauty in her day. Still is. Yes. I mean, I and I don't want to take anything away from that, but. When you see pictures of her in her ingenue stage where she wasn't really known to American audiences. Right, yeah. And she was kind of a little body, too. They're like, uh, they oh, yeah. Those photos oh, of well, her you know, they, like those, those Brits, when they were doing those romps in the 60s, everybody was getting <laughs> naked. <laughs> there was always a scandal, naked right? Naked romp, I believe, was the name of it. <laughs> There you go. All right. Let's leave it there. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the great television that came up 
1982, 40 years ago. That's going to be in our next podcast. The Rowan Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. Studios AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius are our executive producers and our new long-suffering production director, Brian Winger. Thank you, Brian. We're sorry. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>